Hey, this is Dan with episode 44 of Garage to Goliath, Leaders Building Legacies podcast. This is a great interview with an engaging author, with compelling stories to inspire us all to be leaders of influence. I can't wait for you to listen. So, you know, my team and I try to make it really easy for you to revisit and review any ideas you hear on my podcast. I want you to check out the show notes at quigglegroup.com forward slash 044. You can find any links we mentioned in the interview, learn more about Bob Berg, my guest, so you'll definitely want to check out the show notes at quigglegroup.com forward slash 044. We'll have a special upgrade for you there too at quigglegroup.com forward slash 044. Okay, let's learn how to be a go-giver person of influence with our guest, Bob Berg. When we say let go of having to be right, we don't mean you don't desire to be right. We don't mean that you don't prefer to be right. And we don't mean that you haven't prepared and done all the work in order to be right. Not at all. It simply means you've let go of your attachment to having to be right. So imagine getting to speak around the world, meeting the most successful, positive leaders, then getting to choose from that group. That's what my show is about, learning from the best how to be your best, so that we can challenge ourselves to lead with purpose, impacting lives and communities. Hi, I'm Dan Quiggle, and welcome to the Garage to Goliath Leaders Building Legacies podcast, where we learn, lead, and leave a lasting legacy. This is why I'm excited to introduce my listeners to Bob. Bob and I have similar passions, empowering leaders to pursue the next best version of themselves and to talk about the hard topics imperative to success of today's business leader. The American Management Association named Bob one of the 30 most influential leaders. Maybe one of my favorite things about Bob is he's an advocate, supporter, and defender of the free enterprise system, believing that the amount of money one makes is directly proportional to how many people one serves. Bob Berg co-authored The Go-Giver, a best-selling business leadership parable, and then a follow-up parable, The Go-Giver Leader, both books challenging the long-standing paradigm of being a go-getter and other conventional ideas about business success. Now Bob and co-author John David Mann are back with a new and equally compelling story about the power of genuine influence in business and beyond. The Go-Giver Influencer, a little story about a persuasive idea, tackles the paradox of achieving what you want by focusing on other person's interests and needs, not in a way that is self-sacrificial, but rather in a way that all parties benefit greatly. And this results in both immediate and long-term success. And isn't that what we're all working toward? So Bob, many thanks for being here today with my listeners and me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me with you, Dan. Yeah, no, and and, you know, I'd like to start here in the introduction of the Go-Giver Influencer. You share a story about how there was a quizzical coupling of endorsements on the the jacket cover of the book, and I noticed it right away, the Go-Giver. That odd coupling, endorsements from Glenn Beck and Ariana Huffington. So why do you think that is significant? I think with the go-giver, people, by and large, wanted to understand, and wanted, not understand, they wanted to be assured that you could do really, really well in business and do it the right way by bringing extreme, extraordinary value to the marketplace. Because let's face it, the the, the message that we get, and and often it's it's from the time you know we're we're born and and go to school and and start hearing what other people say, and then we grow up in the in the negative news. You think if someone does well in business, they had to do it through hurting others or taking advantage of others or stepping on others, and uh, of course it's a big. World. There's lots of people out there, and there's people who do yucky things. But by and large, in a uh, in a the basically free market society in which we live, and when I say free market, I simply mean no one is forced to do business with anyone else. In this type of marketplace, you ha- you can only you can only prosper by serving others, by bringing value to others. Because remember, nobody's going to. And I, I often say this when I speak at an event. I'll say, you know, nobody's going to buy from you because you have a quota to meet. They're not going to buy from you because you need the money, and they're not even going to buy from you because you're a really nice person. 
They're going to buy from you, or if you're a leader, they're going to follow you because they believe they will be better off by doing so than by not doing so. And that's good. It means that what we need to do is we need to focus on bringing value to others. And I think most people want to know that's how you do business because most people, if they have a product or a service, they believe in it. Most people are good people and they want to to bring value to others and they want to know that they can thrive as a result. So when you have people on both sides of the political aisle, per se, who, you know, who, who say, yes, these are the people, the, the people who are discussed in this book, even though it's a business parable. These are the people I know. The, you know these are the people who succeed because they, they do it this basic way. So, Bob, thank you for bringing that up, especially the, the adding value part, because this is one of the complaints I hear with millennials is they say, well, they want their job to mean something. I'm like, shouldn't we all want our job to mean something? I mean, I want my business to make an impact on people's lives. It goes back to what you said. And so I think that that's a way that we can actually embrace millennials and get them involved by showing that you know this, this company actually has a meaning. It, it's, it's making a difference in society. Would you not agree? Yeah, that's very true. You know, millennials get a bad rap because the rap, if you will, on millennials is that they are, you know, they feel entitled, they want things too fast, they're not willing to do grunt work for 10 years to work well, and they're not. The, the fact is, millennials want meaning. They want meaning. In fact, most people, okay, uh, and if you read Dan Pink's wonderful book, Drive, What Motivates Us, he'll tell you, you know, as important as money is, and let's face it, money is important. It's, it's uh, the currency which gives us choices. That's not most people's main motivation. Most people, they want to know they're making a difference. They want autonomy, a sense of choice and control of their own life. They want to bring value to others. Uh, millennials, just unlike their forebears, uh, including my generation, you know, I just turned 60 years old, they're, they're just not willing to wait 10 or 15 years to do it. So yeah, they they want mentorship. They they want to make it. They'll work long hours, but they they need to know that they're they're making a difference. And the what's what's wonderful about it is that it's been proven so many times over that the companies who have a a higher purpose than just the bottom line actually have a much bigger bottom line. Yeah, see, and I talk about this all the time. I'm like, profit is a byproduct of how well we serve others. That's a fact. Yeah. If profit is your end goal, you're not going to do well. But if you try to serve others, the byproduct is is making money, and that you know benefits everyone. Yeah, uh, exactly. You know, so I'm going to jump on a soapbox here for a second because I, I want to state a problem that I think is significant in today's society, and and I think actually, Bob, you can you can walk us through a solution to this, or at least try. So, I think there is definitely a problem in our society, and and. Today and it's not people disagreeing with one another because disagreement's healthy. It's necessary for progress. Sure. It's that on a whole we can't seem to disagree agreeably, civilly, and most importantly persuasively. I mean, Bob, we definitely need this in our society. And I, I know people like to complain about how uncivil our politicians are, our media are, or whoever else we like to blame. But really, these people are a reflection of us, and they give us more of what we clamor for. So instead of blaming. I think we need to hold the mirror like right here in front of our own individual faces and really think about what we as individuals in our individual life can do to change the landscape of society. And most importantly, you know, and definitely one area we all can work on is disagreeing without being disagreeable. And and what I loved about the Go-Giver Influencer, this enjoyable parable, it's it's a guide to more fruitful interactions with greater, you know, and greater influence. And so I just want, you know, whether between family members and friends, employers, employees, politicians, political pundits, and of course, you know, tens of millions of people out there on social media, today's discussions are no longer discussions. They're hurls of insults that make us feel good in the moment, but no minds are being changed, no hearts are softened, and worse, and this is what I see, and I see it all the time around me, you know, friends are becoming enemies. So fruitful discourse has shut down, understanding acceptance is not being reached, and I think people just feel horrible about it. So the question, Bob, like, you know, how how do people in today's fractured world actually find common ground? Sure, and I, I think you you summarize it perfectly. I mean, you can see it on a on a, a Facebook uh, interaction or anything on social media, but also even in uh, the the world of bricks and mortar. I mean, you, you know, you go to a family gathering uh, or you go to a, a a social event, or you know, and you see the this this total breakdown of of two t- 
teams almost. You're either on our side or the other side. People are no longer defending their principles as much as they're defending their teams. And as you said, not only are they not doing it in a in a, a kind, agreeable way, they're not doing it in a persuasive, influential way as well. Let's take a, a typical Facebook, uh, unfortunately, it, it, too, a much too typical Facebook exchange where somebody uh, posts something about a, let's say, you know, let's go to politics and and something where they uh, they agree with a certain thing or they disagree with a certain thing, whatever. Someone comments back, and it might be a, a friend of theirs. It might be someone who's just you know, wants to make a point, and they the comment is, people like you are just sick human beings. You're the worst of the worst. You're trying to ruin this country, or you know, you don't care about people, or something like that. Now, notice the person who is insulted, uh, you know, who's the recipient of that of that written insult, never responds by writing, "Thank you so much for pointing out the error of my ways." I, I hadn't thought about it like that before, but now that you bring it up, you're right. I have been misguided totally. I'm renouncing my long-held beliefs, and now I'm on your side. <laughs> I mean, that is just not going to happen. I can't believe they wouldn't say that. Yeah, I know. It's amazing, isn't it? Someone who's like totally insulted and having their beliefs and everything they stand for insulted is, is, is not ready to just change and embrace you? <laughs> And so, you know, not only is that not necessary, I mean, it's, it, it's totally, totally counterproductive. And as you said earlier, it might make you feel good in the moment, and you'll get, you'll get a whole bunch of huzzahs from those who already agree with you. But no one's mind is being changed or, or adjusted in any way. And here, here's the interesting thing. During these discussions, because someone would say, okay, but, you know, Bob, that's true, but no one's mind is, is, is going to be changed anyway, and that's not true. Because while you've got some people, and again, let's just put this in the context of politics, but it can re- it can relate to many other areas as well. Uh, there are there's a certain percentage that are so far to the left or so far to the right that no, uh, you know, the, their mind is made up. Don't confuse them with the facts. They're not going to care. Okay, um, but most people. Most people are either somewhere in the middle or they're a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, and and they can uh, be persuaded. A lot of times, these are the people who aren't even commenting, and so – you know, when you're in a when you're in an online uh, debate, if you will, with someone, it's not just that person you're trying to persuade. In fact, the chances are you may not be able to persuade that person. But there's a whole lot of people who are lurking and they're listening and they're watching and they're reading. And what they're looking for are two things: first, who has the most cogent point. Okay, so you do have to know your stuff. But there's one more thing, even more important, and that is. Which one of these people do I like more? Which one of these people can I relate to? Which one of these people could I feel comfortable asking a question to, and they're not going to bite my head off? And so, uh, so let me give you an example, if you don't mind. No, please, how, I, would, I would love how it. you might handle something like this. And, and this, and this totally utilizes all five of the uh, the you know influence. Uh, principles we talked about in the book, but, but we don't even need to know those yet. This is, this is how really simple it can be. Uh, again, let's take the same argument. This person writes back and says, you are the worst, you know, whatever. Okay. <laughs> so here's how we might answer it. First, you know, we control our emotions. Let's make sure we don't just answer back by saying, well, I can't believe the people, because again, it's going to do nothing. Let's instead answer by saying something like, and let's say the person's name is Dave. Um, Dave, I must say I appreciate the passion you have for this, this subject, and it's obvious that you truly care about others. Okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to now we're going to kind of move a little bit. Okay, so I I must say I'm very impressed with your passion and it's obvious you truly care about others. Like you, I want to live in a country where people are able to but now you say whatever it is that both of you probably want. You just have different ways, but that you know that that is the solution where people are able to be able to blah, 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 blah. I think our only difference, or I think our biggest difference, is simply in the way we feel is most productive to cause that to happen. 
Now what you've done is you've taken this from an argument between two totally irrational people just insulting each other, and you've moved it to two people who are really looking to accomplish the same thing, but just understand that there are different ways to go about it. Now, remember, this other person, they may buy into that or may not. They may, and I've seen it happen. It's happened with me and others who I've taught this. This person may say, oh, well, yeah, I shouldn't have said said it like I did, but I really don't believe that blah, 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 blah. Now you've got a conversation going. But Probably this person's not even going to be that nice about it, but everyone listening in has noticed how you handled it. No, I, I you love are that. Much more I love that, but you know, where are the hurls of insults? I mean, what's what fun is there in that? <laughs> you know, because that's what you see all the time. I mean, that's that's what I'm talking about. I mean, it's just, but I love the way you handled that, and I think that my listeners, for my listeners, because there are a lot of you know people who are interested in politics as well, um, you know, there's some good lessons to be learned there, and, and not to fire back. So. You know, I would say it's interesting because in your book, and you brought them up, so I hope you don't mind me going going there to talk about it. But can you share with my audience the five secrets of genuine influence? And, sure. And maybe let's go through them because I actually really enjoyed them. And, and number one was master your emotions. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about here at the beginning. So what does that mean for my listeners? I mean, how can they use this in their lives to be more influential? This is where it all begins. The the sages of old asked, who is mighty? And answered, that person who can control their own emotions and make of an enemy or of a potential enemy a friend. It's only when we can master our emotions, when we're in control of our emotions and control of ourselves, it's only then that we're even... the that we're even able to take a potentially negative situation or person and turn it into a win for everyone involved. On the other hand, when we allow that other person, based on something they said or did, to push our emotional hot buttons and we cause ourselves to get frustrated or defensive or angry, right? Now, not only are we not able to be part of the solution, we're just as much a part of the problem, if not more so than they are. And and we know this. I mean, how many things are there that have to do with that person who can keep their head about them when everyone else, you know, around them is losing, losing theirs? Blaming it on you? Oh, look at you right. pulling out If by Rudyard Kipling. Come on. Right. And that's, and you know, and that's uh, who we respect. That person has influence. But here's the issue, okay? We may know this, but we're human beings. And as human beings, we are emotional creatures. And we, may, we, we like to think we're logical. And to a certain extent, of course, we are. But we're, we're pretty emotion-driven. We make major decisions based on emotion. And we back up those emotional decisions with logic. We rationalize, which if you break up the word rationalize, it simply means we tell ourselves rational And we do this in order to justify that we made a decision that we know we shouldn't have made or we let go, we lost control when we know it was counterproductive, but we don't want to blame ourselves. Here's the thing. We are not in any way suggesting you become some unemotional robot. We're not suggesting that you deny your emotions or forego your emotions. There's no reason to. Emotions are a wonderful part of life. They bring us joy. They make life worthwhile. What we're saying is make sure you're the master of your emotions rather than they being the master of you. Or as my great friend, a a mentor and a real leadership uh, icon, Dondi Scumachi, often says, by all means, take your emotions along for the ride, but make sure you are driving the car. That's great. Yeah, I love that. So, so number two is is you step into the other person's shoes. And we've, you know, we've all heard this again, you know, walk a mile in another man's shoes. But how do we actually do this practically? Well, we need to understand something. Stepping into the other person's shoes isn't so easy when you realize that most of us have different size feet. (laughs) In other words, we come at the world from different viewpoints, right? Different belief systems, a combination of upbringing, environment, schooling, news media, television shows, movies, popular culture. Uh, we, we, We all have our own beliefs. Uh, What is a belief? A belief is a subjective truth. It's the truth as we understand the truth to be, which isn't the same as the truth. So you can have, you know, you hey, most conflict happens because two or more people are looking at the same thing from different viewpoints, right? But as human beings, we tend to think that other people see the world basically the same way we do. 
true, but that's what we, we think. This is why you hear people say things a lot like, um, oh, everybody likes that, or nobody would want that. In sales, one of the biggest things when I work with salespeople is understanding that what you might find beneficial or valuable about your product or service isn't necessarily what your prospective customer would find valuable about that. Value is always in the eyes of the beholder, and that beholder probably has a different belief system than you have. And, you know, I see, so, a, lot of, I see a lot of animosity comes from seeing people as a collective group instead of people as individuals. I agree with you. And, and, I agree with and, you. And, you know, one thing I debated in college, one of the things that I learned is there's not two sides to every story. There's 22,000 plus because exactly <laughs> what you said. And by the way, it, because exactly what you said, I mean, you know, everyone is coming from their own perspective and we all have different perspectives because we all live different lives each and every day with information, uh, experiences, everything. So – and then you talk about setting the frame. And what does this mean? How, you know, how can we each do this in in a situation we walk into? Well, this is – Probably the most important thing to, to keep in mind, because when you've set the proper frame, you have you've put yourself ninety percent of the way toward the result you want. What is a frame? Well, a frame is the foundation from which everything else evolves. Let me give you an example of the the best frame I, I ever saw. It was about three years ago, and I'm sitting inside a Dunkin' Donuts uh, having coffee and reading, which I'm often doing, and there was a little boy, probably two, two and a half years old, a little toddler, and he was running around the restaurant uh, when his parents called him back over to the table. Well, he starts walking toward the table, and suddenly he takes a spill on the floor. He slips and falls. Now, he didn't hurt himself, but you could tell he was shocked. Uh, he did not expect this. So what's the first thing he does? He looks over at the two people in the world he trusts the most, his mom and dad, to get their interpretation of the event. What happened, happened. He wants to know what happens or what comes next. So I truly believe that had the parents gotten uptight and panicky and, oh, no, are you okay? He would have started crying. But what they did is they handled it just beautifully. They, they walked over quickly but very calmly with very good energy. They began to smile and, and, and laugh and applaud. And they said, oh, what a good trick. That looks like so much fun. And he immediately, the little boy immediately began to laugh. What the parents did is they set a productive frame from which he could operate. And we can do that in every conversation, in every transaction. Uh, it can be as easy as an inside-out, from-the-heart smile uh, and our handshake that lets a person know that uh, you know how glad we are to meet them. It can be we're in a group and someone walks in and they don't know if they're welcome to join, and we kind of open up our body language and set the frame of, you know, you're welcome to join us. But we also need to be able to reset the frame. Uh, when someone else brings a somewhat negative frame to the conversation, for example, and let's let's go back to to sales again, just as a as a context, uh, you're about to do a presentation for someone. She's rather defensive. She lets you know, you know, she's not necessarily ready to buy, and so forth. And you know, the chances are she's probably had a, a conversation with a salesperson where she felt pressured or where she, you know, what have you, was antagonistic rather than collaborative. And so, what you want to do to reset the frame is say something very simple, such as, you know, Mary, while we've been able to help a lot of people with this product, uh, whether or not it's the right solution for you, we simply can't know without discovering deeper, exploring deeper, and determining whether it meets your needs. So please know our conversation is for both of us to discover this. And if it does, great. Uh, if not, that's okay, too. I really like that. Yeah, no, it, it takes the pressure off, exactly. puts it right back on the other, other individual. You know, and, and to me, setting the frame isn't just from the communication side. So I own a real estate title agency in Florida, and, you know, we do closings for, for real estate. And it's so funny because, you know, I, I took pride in the fact that – and I still do – that, you know, we would offer gourmet coffees and cookies. And there was a woman in there, and, you know, it was her first property she's ever buying, so much pressure. And, you know, we're bringing in fresh baked cookies, and we're offering cappuccinos and everything. And finally, we're just about to start. And here this pressure situation, she looks at me as I walk in, she goes – this is what I need. I need to be pampered. You know, and I thought, how neat is that? It, you know, here we are at a closing. 
mm-hmm. a stressful real estate situation, and she felt like she was being pampered, and it was just setting up this this. You're framing the, the situation, setting it up like this is not. This is all about fun. This is part of the American dream. Like you should be happy in this moment, and you know, and you should be taken care of, and we should be taking care of the people around us. Um, yeah. The way we communicate, the the environment that we create for them, you know, should should be in a positive light, and I really believe that. Dan, what you did was absolutely perfect. That is the 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 perfect example of a, a frame. You know, it's it's interesting. One of the uh, one of the best examples of a, a framing sentence actually comes from from the classic military book, or I should say, the military classic, The Art of War, uh, credited to uh, Sun Tzu, written about five thousand years ago. And here's what he he said: the peak efficiency of knowledge and strategy is to make conflict unnecessary. Now you think about that. Wow. The peak efficiency of knowledge and strategy is to make conflict unnecessary. This is what a proper frame does. This is what you did for this for this woman, this first time home buyer in one of life's most stressful situations, but the closing of a home. Okay, you created the environment where conflict wasn't even necessary because you set such a wonderful frame of, of comfort for her. Yeah, and and that's all you know how we communicate and everything, and that that's leads directly into your number four, which which I really appreciate is communicate with tact and empathy, and and all right, we all and I mean all struggle to do this on the regular. So first, explain, uh, you know, what do you mean by this? Sure. Well, you know, my dad always has always explained has always defined tact as the language of strength. And to me, that's such a wonderful definition because it's the strong person who, again, through controlling their emotions, putting themselves on the other person's shoes, through setting the frame, first considers what they're going to say and how they're going to say it and how it's going to affect the other person. Uh, tact is a way of being able to communicate an idea to someone that ordinarily they may not want to hear or they may not want to know. Uh, yet doing it in such a way that not only are they not defensive toward you or or to your idea, but they are open to you and to their to your idea. Uh, that's tact. And when you're able to communicate tactfully to someone, wow, what a what a difference it makes. Uh, empathy, which is you know, by definition, it's the identification with or vicarious experiencing of another person's feelings, well, you know, this is, and this is different from putting yourself in another person's shoes. That tends to be more of a, a, an intellectual type of thing, right? And you, you place yourself into the other person's shoes. You understand what they're thinking through asking the right questions. With empathy, it's more of a feeling. It's more of a heart-to-heart resonance with this person. And empathy doesn't necessarily mean you understand how they feel, because again, you probably don't, right? We're different people. I think empathy is when you communicate that you that while you may not understand exactly how they feel, you understand they're feeling something and that this something is distressful to them and that you are there to help them work through it. And when a corporate leader does this, when a salesperson does this, when a parent does this, when a friend does this, what a difference it makes with that other person because they feel understood. They they know that you have their best interest at, at, at heart. You know, I loved what uh, Simon Sinek wrote in his wonderful book, uh, Leaders Eat Last. He wrote, trust is a biological reaction to the belief that someone has our well-being at heart. See, and I, I love empathy, and I talk about this, in, you know, when I speak, because it's not just what they're going through, or you know, it's not just the actual issue, but you know, what are they actually going through? And and so many people, I mean, I'll talk to CEOs, I'll talk to leaders about this. I'm like, so what are your employees going through? And they're like, you know, divorce, kids on drugs, you know, weddings, and you know, anniversaries, you know, but all even those things cause stress and financial concerns. And I'm like, we can't solve their problems, but what can we show them that we what? And they'll go care. And I say, absolutely. <laughs> Because guess what? guess what we know, everyone? They're probably not getting that at home sometimes. And so we get to be that place where they feel cared for, they feel loved, and there's nothing wrong with that. And when they feel it and it's real, it goes back to the whole John Wooden thing. You know, John Wooden would take those, those, those athletes, those students, and he would invest in them. And, and when people feel – and, you know, truly feel that and it's real, what do they want to give us? Everything. Not because they have to, because they want to. 
And so I think I love that you talk about tact and empathy, and I think that we need to be, you know, we need to talk more about that in in business, and, and showing people that we care, that we're there for them, and, and it matters to people. And then let's jump to number five because I think this is just <laughs> again, you know, it's a need that I think a symptom that we all have to deal with. But you say let go of having to be right. And I, I call this CEO disease, and and um, I talk about it a lot. You can get a free copy of my ebook about CEO disease at quigglegroup.com forward slash CEO disease. But Bob, how do we get over this? You know, the, the desire, the need, the impulse to be right all the time. Yeah, and this is the this is the the fifth principle, the fifth secret, if you will. And like the other books in the series, we usually have four laws or principles or secrets that, that face in one direction, and then a fifth one that seems to go counter toward those four. And, and this is sort of that one, right? We've been talking about ways you can be influential, and then we say, but let go of having to be right. Yet actually, this is probably the most powerful one and the CEOs who listen to you regarding the CEO disease, they found this to be the, the, most, the most powerful thing they can do. When we say let go of having to be right, we don't mean you don't desire to be right. We don't mean that you don't prefer to be right. And we don't mean that you haven't prepared and done all the work in order to be right. Not at all. It simply means you've let go of your attachment to having to be right. Now, Again, this seems like it would make you less influential. Actually, it makes you more influential for two reasons. One is when you let go of having to be right, you go into what we call learner's mode. (laughs) So rather than just stay with a position, regardless of the evidence against it, you allow yourself to learn. You allow yourself to be open to the idea that there might be more to this than you think. Uh, Again, one of the things there's a big challenge with today, especially in these political arguments we've talked about, is people have taken a position and they are suffering deeply from what's called confirmation bias which is defined exactly how it says. Uh, Any information they hear, uh, if it confirms their already held beliefs or biases, they'll accept it. But if it doesn't, they'll just ignore it. You absolutely cannot learn that way. You cannot grow that way. It's said that you can't totally understand the subject unless you can argue it from both sides. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to agree with the other side. It means you simply understand the other side and where they're coming from. Go back to politics. I tell you know conservative members in my audience, start watching MSNBC. I tell the, the progressive or liberals in the audience, start watching Fox News. Not so that you can look for where they're wrong, not so that you can make fun of them, and also not so that you can agree with them. No but so you can understand them, so you can understand why they think the way they think, okay? This puts you in a position of strength. Now, when you go into learner's mode, you end up having more information than you did before. That's the first thing. The second reason it makes you more influential is because when you are in a discussion with someone and they see that rather than just being fixated on defending your position, but rather uh, you have let go of the attachment to having to be right, they see that you're not just looking to defeat them or win against them or overcome them. You're simply looking for truth and they will tend to respond in kind. Yeah, and that is so good because, and I want my listeners to really take this to heart from a business standpoint, but also from a family standpoint. Because I think within our families, you know, we want to be right, or as a parent, we want to make sure that the kids know that we're right all the time. But we're not going to be. And I have this conversation with my kids all the time. I sit them down and say, look, I'm going through this just like, you know, just like you are. We're all kind of going along the way. I want to make the best possible decisions, but there's, there are going to be times when I'm wrong. And I'll try to, you know, I'll try to learn from that mistake. But, you know, we're all trying to make it through life and be the best that we can be. And so let's all do it together. And I, I just got to speak for this this youth group this week, and I loved it because I said, you know, within my family, I said, look outside these walls. That's where we compete. But we don't compete in this house. We don't. This is the safe zone. This is where everybody can learn. This is, there's no problem too big for this group. 
We can deal with it. We can, you know, we can help each other. But out there, life is tough. Not here in this house. Nobody ever says I hate you. Nobody ever lashes out. You know, phones go away. Things disappear if that happens. But in the meantime, like this is the learning zone. This is where we can talk about it. And I, and I think within our companies, we can be that same culture, that same org- organization. Oh yeah. You know where we're learning on a regular basis. And that's created, by the way, by the leadership. Uh, you know, we you, a, a person can lead from anywhere, certainly. And I think great authors such as Robin Sharma and Mark Sanborn, they've written books that talk about that. But the culture comes from the top, and it trickles down. And it's up to that leader to create that culture. It's up to that leader to keep working on that culture continually. Yeah, and, and that's why these five are so great for a leader to listen to and really take to heart. And and then and then I love this because you you say there's one sentence and I you know I, I want every every one of my listeners to really focus in here for a second. You say there's one sentence that we can use as leaders of influence to mitigate misunderstandings. What oh, is Oh sure. Yeah, and again this goes back to uh to to step into the other person's shoes it goes back to beliefs and understanding that we can that 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 we can all look at one thing from different points of view and that's what messes us up. Let's go to a corporate example. And there's a small you know there's a team within a uh, within a company. This is a small team. There's you know four or five people on this team. The team leader calls them together on Monday morning and says, "Hey, uh, there's been a change with this this project. Oh, we need to, to to get it in. You need to get your work in as soon as possible." Okay, boom. Now, Wednesday, 5 p.m., end of day comes around. Team leader gathers everyone around and says, hey, you know, I, I, we need to work. I said I needed it as soon as possible. Only one person has gotten their work in. Well, let's see what happened. That one person, they've been around this, per, this leader for a while, and they know that when, when he says we need it as soon as possible, it's drop everything and just get this done now, Okay. Another person on the team, they come from another team within the company uh, that as soon as possible means, well, you get done what you need, what you're working on now, and then you get to this, the next thing. Well, another person comes from a different company where they were on a team where as soon as possible meant absolutely nothing. You just give it lip service and keep doing what you're doing. So you've got a, one term as soon as possible, and uh, it means different things to different people, and that's why it gets messed up. But what if this leader had said, uh, you know, we need it done. We, now we need to get it done as soon as possible. And what I mean by that, just, and just to clarify, what I mean by that is end of day, Wednesday, five o'clock. Well, now, boom, Everybody knows exactly when it needs to be done. Now, if that team leader didn't think of it, one of the other people on the team might have said, "Hey, hey, Jack, uh, just for my own clarification, that's that's tact, right? Just just for my own clarification, or just just so we're all on the same wavelength, or all on the same page." When you say uh, "as soon as possible," is there a specific date and time you're thinking of? And then the person would say, well, yes, Wednesday afternoon, end of day, 5 o'clock. So basically the one question you can ask for the rest of your life, okay, and teach everyone in your team this and teach your kids this, is when someone says something, don't assume that you know exactly what they mean and don't assume they know what you mean because you don't and they don't. So you simply ask. You ask them to define their terms and you do it tactfully. Hey, when you say so-and-so, is there a or May I ask exactly what you mean or, or exactly what you're thinking? Boom. Wow. I mean, the clarity of communication there is important. And especially, and even, again, with family and kids, I mean, this all matters. I mean, you know, so many CEOs and so many leaders that I get to interact with on a regular basis, you know, maybe they're really good at work, but maybe they're not putting as much time in at home or they're not as clear at home on their goals or objectives. I even say when I'm talking to these people, you know, that – Hey, can you imagine if we spent a fraction of our time like strategizing and leading and doing all the, you know, putting together graphs for our family where everybody could be? If we were that clear in the goals and that clear in the communication, and so I love that you're talking about this from a family and a business perspective, and uh, and I think that that's that's important. So I know my listeners really want to know this, but what are the eight keywords that will move a person to your side of the issue nearly every time? Right. And, and this is when you're dealing with someone, say, and, and it, hey, it you know, could be anyone who's presenting a, a you know, a difficult, keeping you from, from getting the results you need. It might be someone in a different department at work, but it also might be the uh, bureaucrat who's, who's not, you know, helping you to, to get 
something you need to be able to build an addition on your home, or it might be the customer service person who's not not taking that extra step that you need them to take to help you, whatever. And what you do is, uh, so long as you, again, have set this up by being polite, by being patient, and being courteously persistent, as Zig Ziglar used to say, and you've, you've, you've helped to give them sort of a, 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 a way to find a solution. And then the eight key words you would say are, are, are this. If you can't do it, I'll definitely understand. Mary, if you can't do it, I'll definitely understand. And what you've done is you've, you've honored her, you've respected her, you've, you know, you've let her know you think she can do it, you hope she will, but that she, that ultimately, if she just simply cannot do it, that she is more important than the situation. If you can't do it, I'll definitely understand. Now, that right there, and then just pause, and, and I'll tell you nine times out of ten, you will get the result you want. What you can do is you can pause for a few seconds, and then with a very you know, again, genuine smile, you, you follow that up with, if you, if you could, I'd certainly appreciate it. Yeah, I think that's good. And it, it's a little bit of a challenge for them. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I'd like that you're saying, you, you definitely look out for their best interests, but also saying, hey, you know, I would like you to get this done, but you have to do what you, you know, only what you can do. Exactly. And I You've th- given them the out or the back door as well. You haven't painted them into a corner. And, and this is one of the biggest things when it comes to influence and persuasion. People want to feel, and justifiably so, that they control their world. Okay, and so when you give someone that you know, if you can't, if you can't do it, I'll definitely understand. It's like when you were set resetting the frame with uh, Mary, the customer, and you said if it, if it works out, great. If not, that's okay too. And you know, and this goes to to the next point because I think it just segues perfectly into it. So everything that we've been talking about, and based on the parable of the go giver influencer. I, I think that my listeners might assume that you're a huge advocate of compromise. However, you say compromise is typically not the answer. Will you explain that for my listeners and me? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, and, of course, there's a time and place for everything, in, including compromise. But we say that compromise is not the first option we want you to, to take. Because compromise, one of the characters in the, uh, in the story, uh, there were two mentors and two protégés. So, so this, this, pro, this mentor, Coach George, uh, was saying to his, his uh, protégé, Jillian, that compromise, and he was saying this jokingly, of course, but, but he said compromise comes from the Greek word meaning nobody actually gets what they want and nobody is happy. <laughs> and of course, that's not really what it, what it means, but it might as well. Because compromise, by its very nature, is lose-lose. It means both sides, if you will, are giving something up that they really want in order to kind of placate that person or just, you know, make this thing happen. Again, by its very nature, people, it shrinks the pie. People get less than what they, they really want. That's compromise. What we want instead of compromise is collaboration. Collaboration is truly win-win. Collaboration makes for a bigger pie. Collaboration takes one plus one and turns it into three. Yeah, and in a world <laughs> where there is ample opportunity to focus on all the areas of disagreement, you know, or everything we don't have in common with one another, I believe it's real leaders in life in our society that will aggressively look for areas of commonality. So I love the collaboration sure. part. Absolutely. And it's asking the right questions to discover. And this is, again, this is just so very key. It's asking the right questions to discover what is it that they want, they need, they desire. What is, what are you asking that person to do? Or is what you're asking that person to do congruent with their values? What problem is it solving for them? What is it? And, and to the degree that a leader will ask those questions to a degree that a salesperson, who also is a leader, to, will ask those questions. That's the degree that we're going to be able to, to help that person get the results they want, and that's what builds everyone in the process. Now, to my own salespeople listening and to friends who are in sales or everything, uh, to take it to the next level, it's not just listen, you know, a- asking that, but then actually listening to the answer. Right. And, and well, that's where we say listening with the back of your net, yes. with your entire being. Yeah, I think that's important. You know, you know, I had this very fortunate opportunity to work, uh, you know, for President Reagan as post presidential office. And you know what? The thing that I always appreciate about President Reagan was that you could disagree with this guy on ten things; he would find an eleventh. Hmm. 
and find a common ground and, you know, be able to have a discussion with you. Today, I think in politics and, you know, in life, we could agree on 10 things. If we disagree on the 11th, I hate you and don't want to talk to you. Right. Well, and, and, and that's an issue. And that and that's the issue. And I, and and so I I think that you've given us a lot to focus on, on the way that we communicate, the way we handle issues, the way we strive to always be right, the, how we can frame it, all of those different things. I, I just had some other quick leadership-related questions for you, if you don't mind. You know, how would you describe your leadership style? How would I describe mine? I'd say mine is 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 one of a combination of encouragement and teaching. Okay, and and so do you find that you're you know when that you're instructing people that you're teaching them on a regular basis around you? Yeah, well, what we do because my business partner Kathy uh, Tajanel and I, you know, our our team is. Uh, you know, they're not employees, they're independent contractors. So we need them to be able to do things. And you talk about, you know, in a sense, a volunteer army. I mean, we pay them well, but, but you know, they're, they don't, they're not our employees. So we need to be able to lead in a way that really provides them with buy-in. Because remember, it's not their company. And let's face it, no one cares about your company as much as you care about your company. So, <laughs> so we need to be able to lead. We need to be able to encourage. We need to be able to, to teach in a way that we, we, uh, we, again, we give them emotional ownership and we, we provide the environment where they want to do well for us. And we have just got these wonderful contractors who, uh, you know, who, uh, who work with us. And, you know, the neat thing about that is they are the ultimate CEOs. I mean, they're the master. When you're in commission like that, you're the master of your own domain. I mean, mm-hmm. the harder you work, the more you have a chance to prosper. And I, I actually really love and appreciate those positions. De- describe the one trait that you look for in, in your top people and why. If you had to choose one trait, and I know that's hard, but just one trait that you look for. Oh, I, I think it would be uh, the ability to empathize. Yeah, that empathy uh, is strong, that, isn't it? Yeah, that 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 is very important. I, I really believe that empathy is probably the most important business skill. I think it's the most important social skill. I think it's the most important human skill. And and man, it matters. And that's different from <laughs> sympathizing. No, you know? no, no, I I hear you. I hear you. And and just just the ability to, to to understand what people are going through is just such a big issue. I mean, because to say leave that at the door especially of a company, would be as easy for us to leave it at the door. Sometimes things just weigh on you. I mean, things horrible. You know, we're we're spinning really fast on a dangerous planet. Crazy things go down. And, and you know, the interesting part of that is some people will tell you everything. But some people, you don't even know they're going through these tough times. Right. Because they just internalize all of it. And so I, there was a great – I have a friend who runs an organization and, you know – He's a very private person, so he doesn't want me to use his name or organization, but everyone pretty much listening would know it, and he's number one. And he told me one time, he said, we have four people in this organization we call guardians. It's a second title for them. And whenever anybody's hurting, we send one of the four guardians. And we know we can't solve their problem, but we can definitely show them that we care. And he said, essentially, they walk into the office and they're like, hey, how are you doing? No, seriously, are you okay? And they say, hey, here's how today's going to go down. You're going to pick any restaurant in the city. We're going to go there today. The two of us, we can talk there. It's on the company. And by the way, I hold a list of five names in my hand, five people that love you at this company. And for the next five nights, they're bringing by dinner. Don't fight it. They're they're coming and it's going to be a lot of food. You know what I love about that? Can you imagine if you're going through a tough time and somebody did that for you? I mean, how would you feel? I mean, you know, and it has to be real, but why shouldn't it be? I mean, these people give their lives, you know, to, to support us, help us, invest in us. I, mean, I, I just love that. I, I love that he did that. Matter of fact, I, I say that in some of my speeches. I had the other day a, a large company call. They sent me a thing that said, uh, we've created a guardian program within our company of people who, you know, we're not going to solve their problems, but we can definitely help, you know, and show them that we're, that we're there for them. And I just really appreciated that. And that's, that's where that empathy comes in. It's just so, you know, so important. Mm-hmm. So let me, who has had a significant impact on you as a leader? Do you have a, a mentor? Well, I mean, I, I was very blessed to grow up with uh, as the son of, of two great mentors, my mom and dad, who really, uh, you know, established for me really how to how to be a person, you know, how to live a life that that brought value to others. And I saw how they, you know, they just celebrated their I think sixty second anniversary, and and um, you know, and I just saw how they were with people and. Uh, that was a great example. I'd say they're my ultimate mentors. And then I've, I've been very fortunate that as I, as I grew up and, and got into business, it, it, it seemed like there were always mentors who came along 
exactly when I needed them. <laughs> and so I've been able to, uh, you know, I've been able to, to learn from them. Uh, again, the sages asked, you know, who is, who is wise? And the answer is that person who learns from all others. So whether it's uh, people who we see in person, people in our community, people who we might you know see online and never even know, or of course the books we get to read that from people from hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, or or you know even recently who we don't know, but we can still learn from. Well, and I do love that you're a lifelong learner, and I think that that's a key to success. And by the way, for my listeners, I, I'm going to have a link to all of the books that that Bob mentioned throughout this podcast. And and I want to I want to end with this because I think you know this gives some perspective. In my keynote speaking, often around the topic of legacy and legacy leadership, I ask people at the end. I'm like, okay, look, I'm going to ask you a question. It's going to mess with me mentally because <laughs> I'm going to say it. And I won't be able to get it out of my head. And then I say, if you don't have children, just just put in, you know, replace it with friends or family. Uh, but I ask them this question. How do you want your children to describe you to their children? You know, what was grandpa really like? And I'll get some very, you know, interesting responses. And sometimes we have to go back to the drawing board but a little bit. But Bob, in your wildest fantasy, how would you want to be described? Oh, I would say that uh, that he made people feel genuinely good about themselves. Yeah, and to do that, what does that take? That takes a lot of love, a lot of attention, think, yeah. listening, it, education, it, it, all those things. Absolutely, it? and it takes a real focus on them. It takes a genuine focus. The, you know, my my feeling is that the single greatest people skill is a highly developed and authentic interest in the other person. Well, you can't end any better than that. <laughs> Bob Berg, thank you so much. I mean, I think you added real value today. Where can people find out more about you? Best place to go is uh, the go giver without the hyphen, thegogiver.com. And when they're there, they can, they'll see the uh, new book, the purple cover, The Go-Giver Influencer, and they can click on that. It will take them to a page where they can get a couple of chapters to read first. And if they like it, they can always click through. Um, my podcast, The Go-Giver Podcast, is also there, as well as how to connect with me uh, online. Well, you know, we'll be sure to include all your links in the show notes at quigglegroup.com forward slash 044. You know, I'd, I'd love to offer something special to our listeners in this episode. We, we can talk about that offline, uh, about what that could be. And if you ever see an opportunity for us to collaborate, speaking, idea, whatever, let us know. But love to work together with you. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. I really appreciate it. Well, you're a fantastic guy, Dan. I really appreciate all you're doing. And uh, thank you for having me. All right. Thank you so much. Remember, check out the show notes for this episode of Garage to Goliath with Bob Berg at quigglegroup.com forward slash 044. Please also subscribe to Garage to Goliath on iTunes and leave an honest review. You can subscribe and leave a review at quigglegroup.com forward slash iTunes. Subscribing helps others find the show and your reviews help me get better as your host. And please share this episode with friends, other people in your life, that you want to help empower to be leaders of influence. Remember, you can just send them a quick text, email, whatever, and say something like, I heard this great podcast episode, I thought of you. You can check it out at quigglegroup.com forward slash 044.